You are listening to the Forcecom Frontline, bringing you to our soldiers on the front lines of readiness. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Forcecom Frontline. I'm Ashley. And I'm Eve. And we've got a great episode for you today. We're talking about mental health as well as sharing one soldier's story of adoption and her emigration from the Philippines to the United States. Before we get to that, though, we've got some business to take care of. I sense it. did you know? Eve. Yes, did, Ashley. Did you know? I know lots of things, but I have a feeling I won't know this one. Well, one in five adults experience mental illness each year. That's 20.6% of the population or 51.5 million people. Wow. And yet still so many people fear speaking up or reaching out because of what others might think, but they're not even alone. That's actually a great lead into our next guest. We are starting this episode with a quick introduction to retired Command Sergeant Major Jason Van Cleek. Jason has struggled with depression and suicidal ideations, and today he shares his story in hopes that he can help others who find themselves in similar situations. Well, we'd like to welcome you, Jason. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, thanks for having me. And, you know, why don't we just dive right in and would you mind sharing some of your story with us? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to start at the beginning of my career. So I joined the Army in 1996 and uh, right out of high school. And I went to basic training in AIT. I'm a military policeman by trade. So I did OSIT. And then uh, from basic training in AIT, I was assigned to Fort Drum, where I, that was my first duty station. So I uh, was up there for a couple years. Um, PCS from there to Germany. Uh, I only did 10 months in Germany. And uh, three of those were in Bosnia. And uh, then I got selected right around my three-year mark in the Army to go and be a recruiter in, at that time, the newly created corporate recruiting program. So I uh, PCS'd from Germany to recruiting, and I recruited back in my hometown, actually. of I'm from Indiana, so I recruited actually back in my hometown. And um, did 18 months on recruiting. That's how the corporate recruiting program worked back then. And um, from there, I uh, PCS'd to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, um, as I was a young sergeant, uh, and it was right after 9-11 had happened. So I was on recruiting during 9-11. I reported to Fort Campbell in October of 2001. Oh, wow. And um, so I got there and uh, deployed immediately right away, pretty much, to uh, Afghanistan on a short tour there. Um Came back, hung out at Fort Campbell for a year, training up, training up. Well, then Iraq kicks off OIF. So I deployed to OIF um, in 2003 and uh, did a 12-month tour there. And, you know, really up to all this, you know, my career was pretty normal. There was no issues. There was nothing to be concerned about. I was just a young soldier doing his thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And... So during my deployment to Iraq, um, obviously it was the the invasion of Iraq, um, and I was involved in a, some some incidents and and primarily a, a a major firefight that resulted in the death of uh, my battalion commander and uh, a couple other soldiers, and that was um, October of two thousand and three. I redeployed back to Fort Campbell in. Uh, March of 2004, and um, 
I think this is kind of where my issue probably started. Um, during that, the, the aftermath of that firefight, um, I never really dealt with anything. I was a squad leader at the time. Didn't really deal with any of the incident mm-hmm. or the emotional impact of the incident because um, you were deployed and you did your memorial ceremony and then you just went back out and you continued fighting the, the good fight. Um, and then when I got back to America, I was home on leave and um, a girl that I was dating at the time, her brother's best friend was a Marine and he got killed in Fallujah. And um, I went to his funeral back in Indiana and that was probably the first time that I emotionally dealt with what had happened in during my deployment because I'm at this funeral and I'm just bawling like a baby. Yeah, <laughs> I barely knew the guy. Um, I go back to Fort Campbell and I come down on drill sergeant orders. So in 2004, I get in May of 2004, I get selected to be a drill sergeant. So I go to drill sergeant school in August of 2004, um, graduate a couple months later, and then I report to Fort Jackson to be a drill sergeant. And uh, same thing, everything's kind of normal. I mean, no, no, nothing that to be concerned about or, you know, no depression or suicidal thoughts during that time, mm-hmm. um, during about the first year of it. And when I went on the trail as a drill sergeant, it was go, go, go. I mean, we were really ramping up the army. You know, this was during the big growth of personnel. Yeah. So we were yeah. training, 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 full companies, 260 privates, graduate on a Friday, pick up on a Monday, train, you know, again, so same thing over and over. So you didn't have time off to think about anything. Right, right. I mean, you're just training soldiers, you know, and and, um, and so uh, that happened for most of 2005. And then all of a sudden in 2006, it just stopped. And so around March, I think, February, March of 2006, um, the there was, we, we had a cycle, we graduated and then there was no cycle to fill. And they said, Hey, you're going to, we're going to be on a cycle break. And at first you're like, yeah, this is awesome. You know, <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to take a break from training for the last year. Mm-hmm. And so we would go to work, do accountability, maybe do some minor tasks around the company. And then we would go home. I mean, I'm home by 11 o'clock probably mm-hmm. every day. And I lived by myself. I was single at the time. Um, and so I would just, I would go home and just sit in my apartment. And this is where I really like the first couple of weeks are cool, right? You're like, yeah. yeah, we're getting some time off and you're hanging out with your buddies. Well, then I, it becomes just mundane every day, right? The, the, the trudge through the daily <laughs> and one week turned into two weeks, turned into a month. Well, ultimately this cycle break became three months long. Oh, wow. I'm sitting in my apartment and I have a PlayStation back then and I would just sit in my apartment and play my PlayStation. And I just started to go into this depression Mm -hmm. because I didn't know what to do with myself. My brain like had been on overdrive probably since I was a recruiter and all of a sudden, bam, it just stops. And my brain just didn't know what to do with itself. And I would just sit in my apartment and um, stare at the wall and think, gosh, man, like it, it's 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 almost impossible to explain to somebody how um, depressive it was. 
Uh, I mean, to, to try to explain that level of depression, I think is hard. And, and yeah. I think that's why it's hard for people to understand it if they haven't been through it. Because it's not just, oh, he's depressed. No, I'm telling you, like, I sat staring at the wall thinking, why am I here? And I don't want to be here. And it wasn't like a life situation. It wasn't like, oh, I lost a girlfriend or I lost a wife or, or, I mean, it was just utter boredom, utter not knowing what to do with myself. And this was, you know, during this era, behavioral health wasn't a focus, you know, it was just probably starting to get focus. Um, and, you know, all the free sessions you can go to, those were just starting. Um, the, uh, you know, behavioral health within the military health system um, wasn't very robust back then. And your resources, um, you know, were so limited. And like I said, military one source, that's what it was. They, you know, they were just starting. But if I went to work, you would, my battle buddies, they wouldn't have known. I'm, I'm the same guy at work that I was every day. Happy. I'm a pretty happy guy. I, I like to think I'm a, you know, pretty cheerful guy, energy, full energy. And when I went to work, you wouldn't have guessed it. But when I went home and I had to sit in that apartment on that couch by myself, staring at the wall, um, man, it was, it, it was, it was, it's, it's indescribable how depressive it was. Luckily, I, recognized it um i you know i like to think that i can you know i think one thing we have to teach soldiers is to be introspective right be able to assess yourself mm -hmm. and go something isn't right and and luckily i did that um because i could have not done it and then gotten to a point where it was so bad that i maybe wouldn't be standing here today talking to you or i my career would have ended uh, much earlier than it did uh, definitely not as a SAR major. So for me, I recognized it and I said, I've got to do something. I've got to get out of my apartment. I can't just sit here because I'm just miserable and I would rather not be alive. And, you know, suicide is a choice and you eventually make a choice whether you're going to live or die. And um, I chose to live one day I said, I've got to get out of my house. So I don't know why this happened. I don't know what drove my thinking to this direction, but I was like, what if I could learn how to ballroom dance? Now, Seems reasonable. The, yeah. 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 I, I don't know why, but for some reason I thought, man, what if I could just find a way to ballroom dance? And so I went online and I looked and sure enough, there's this YMCA down in Columbia, South Carolina, and they're doing um, ballroom dancing lessons and they were free. And so I was like, I'm going to go down there. So here I am. I'm probably 24, 25 years old at the time. Get in my truck, drive down, find the YMCA in Columbia, South Carolina. I walk in. It's like all these old people in there. <laughs> and when I say old, I mean, I'm, you know, they're probably in their 50s. But to, for a 25 year old, I'm looking at them going, man, these people are old, you know. <laughs> Now they probably uh, don't seem quite as old. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. Now that I'm 42, I'm like, oh, they're not that old. But, um, and I walk in and this lady looks at me and she's like, and I'm just kind of watching them and she's like, can I help you? And I'm like, yeah, I, I just want to learn how to dance. And she kind of looked at me like, what? Like, cause she's probably thinking the same thing. Like, why is this young 20 something year old dude, you know, guy standing in the YMCA? 
wanted to learn how to ballroom dance. And so uh, I just, she's like, oh, okay. I mean, you could tell she was kind of stumbling over her words, like, okay, well, come on over here. I said, I don't have a partner. And she's like, no, come on over here. And she's like, you can just dance with this lady here. And so I wound up partnering up with some old lady and, and um, I learned some ballroom dancing. And I can tell you that the mental reprieve was was unbelievable you know um it was probably an hour and then i left and i went home and but it was like i think it was maybe twice a week they did this maybe once a week i don't recall exactly but it gave me something to look forward to the next week or two days from now whatever day it was right so sure enough the next week i go back down there here i am show up learn how to ballroom dance um i did this for a couple weeks and um but but once like i said the mental reprieve on my brain was just unbelievable that i was i felt like i was doing something yeah and that's what i that's what i stress to people is a lot of depression i'm no doctor but i've been there and a lot of that depression comes from a lack of activity you're not doing enough that satisfies you you got to figure out what it is that satisfies you. And, and at that moment, that's what it was. I, those, those people at the YMCA to this day have no idea why I was there. Um, they have, I, I don't know who they are. They don't probably know who I am or remember me or, you know, um, but I didn't walk in there and go, I'm depressed and I need to, you know, <laughs> to learn how to ballroom dance. But, but they don't know what the impact was to take me in and just kind of let me blend in with them and learn how to dance. And I probably did that for about a month. And then, um, and then we went back to training soldiers and boom, I was back into, to doing my thing. I, you know, was a drill sergeant for about another, uh, probably another eight or nine months. Um, and then from there I moved on in my career um, and went to Fort Riley. I was a platoon sergeant at Fort Riley. Um, and I, I tried to be open with my story and with my battles. Um, and then I became a first sergeant at Fort Riley. And I was even more open with my battles um, with depression and, and trying to let people know that my mentality behind staying mentally fit is you got to, you know, continue to train your brain. Um and uh and then i became a sergeant major and i've been a, a csm and i was very open and i was a, a training battalion sergeant major i was very open with all those soldiers whether they were drill sergeants whether they were privates that hey this is my struggle and i've been there and it's and i still struggle sometimes not not to the depth of i'm gonna you know that i want to commit suicide mm-hmm. um part of that is because I'm aware, because I'm, I'm, I've, I'm willing to accept that, that I have these battles and that, Hey, I got to notice it. Um, but even to, you know, to this day, there's days where I'm like, man, I'm just struggling. And I tell my wife, I'm like, I'm just having a bad day. And she'll tell me, and she write, she'll be like, Hey, go do X, Y, and Z. Or sometimes it's cause I'm underwhelmed. Sometimes it's cause I'm overwhelmed. I kind of got to find a fine balance in there. And so she'll tell me, go write down everything you think you need to do and look at it. And it's not as overwhelming or as big of a problem. And it really is. uh, And then I have hobbies, 
you know, I do a lot of woodworking. That's, you know, one of my hobbies. Um, and sharing my story, I think is one of my, one of my hobbies, maybe, (laughs) uh, you know, I try to, I, I think it's important that we share our stories as leaders because we need people. I think it's important for soldiers to understand that this isn't a private problem. It's not a lieutenant problem. It's a everybody problem. And the more that us leaders can admit that, hey, we're not perfect, that the struggle is real. I think that your soldiers are more relatable to you. They want to relate to you better. Um, I don't have the answer for everybody's problem. Everybody's trigger is different and everybody's fix is different. But what I can do is tell you that I understand that level of depression and I can try to help you through it. It's so hard, though. Um, Sorry. No, you're right. All of the things that you're saying, I'm like taking all in and I have so much to say back to you. Um, (laughs) I'm not going to I'll save some of it for later. Um, But that moment where you actually say to yourself, wow, there's something wrong with me and I need help. It shouldn't be that big of a deal. But for some reason, behavioral health or mental health care is considered a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I I know that when I was sitting in my apartment, looking at the wall, depressed, and I mean, like in tears, depressed, like, you know, I, I, I knew that like I'm sitting there going, I don't want what, this sucks. I'm so depressed. I don't want to be here. But at the same time, I'm like, but I know that I don't want to die either. You know, like, like that was kind of like the internal struggle, right? Yeah. Is like, why am I so depressed? But at the same time, like, I I'm, I don't necessarily want to die. Right. <laughs> so it was like this internal battle of, of what do you do? I agree with you. Like, you know, it, it, it shouldn't, it should, if we could normalize it, and that's what I try to push is, you know, if we can put behavioral health on the front end instead of the back end, it doesn't become this big decision to have to go to behavioral health or go seek help. And I'll be honest with you, even, I mean, I, I think the value to behavioral health is getting a professional to look at you and say, um, hey, this is the issue that I see. And now let's, let's get after fixing it. Right. The problem right. is that because there's such this this weird, I guess stigma is the word. I I, I hate the word stigma because <laughs> it gets over you. It, it just gets over you. It I does. Think, you know, you know, it's like the quick answer. Oh, there's a stigma. Well, what's the stigma? Or uh, be resilient. What does that mean? You know, like how do you how do I be resilient? You know, there's lessons taught in resiliency because resiliency is just an umbrella term. Right. And if, if we spent more time telling soldiers, quit catastrophic thinking, oh, now I, I know a lesson that goes with that and I can apply it. Well, and, and what catastrophic thinking really is, too, you know, like, yeah, I feel like that's probably not something that people really think about. Am I why am I thinking like this and what do I do to get out of it? Correct. But the problem is that a lot of a lot of leaders Instead of looking at their soldier and going, hey, quit catastrophic thinking, <laughs> they say, they say, hey, be more resilient. <laughs> well, if I don't even, there's no class called resiliency. There's a class called how to defeat catastrophic thinking yeah. or, you know, whatever the other resiliency skills are. 
And I use catastrophic thinking because I think that's what happens with most people when it comes to these types of, when we talk about behavioral health a lot, I think a lot of it is for me, especially catastrophic thinking, you take a situation and turn it into something much larger than it probably sure. really is. But I can, but I can then say, Oh, catastrophic thinking. I've had a class on that. I can fix it by doing X, Y, and Z um, versus be more resilient. Well, right. What's the class to change? to be more resilient. There isn't. It's it's all these other classes. So I agree with you that there's this weird stigma, I guess, yeah. to, to going to behavioral health. But I think that stigma comes from it being the last option instead of the first. And so what happens is that, and I, 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 my big thing I tell soldiers all the time when I was, you know, especially as a first sergeant and a sergeant major and kind of my mantra is you have to treat your brain like it's your most important weapon. And cause it is. And, um, you have to do that regular weapons maintenance. And so, and the way I try to equate that is to say every Monday we go to the motor pool and, and do maintenance on our trucks, whether it needs it or not, we do it. Right. And then we, then in the afternoon we go to the arms room, we draw out our weapons and we may, we do some PMCS and we clean them a little bit if they need to be cleaned whether it needs it or not. And the reason we do that is because it's preventive maintenance and we're preventing it from breaking. And if we could just get soldiers to see and, and treat behavioral health or mental maintenance um, the same way, then I think that we would see less of the, well, I got chaptered out because I went to behavioral health, you know? Right. Well, why, why did you get chaptered out? Well, because I was just, I waited till the last minute to go. Well, yeah, because that's just like waiting to do maintenance on your weapon until you take it to the range and then it breaks. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think, you know, if you can, if we can push soldiers, leaders, units um, to think in that, that method of how do we apply mental maintenance. And I think, I think that's a better term than behavioral health. Cause I think as soon as you say behavioral health or mental health, people automatically think of going to the hospital, going to behavioral health and sitting in an office with somebody that's going to make a decision about you. I think there's other ways to get after mental maintenance on the front end instead of the back end. And then you can maybe drop some of that mental health stigma if you make it the norm instead of the reactionary. Right. Well, and so we could keep going on and on and on. And <laughs> we're not going to because you're going to come back and talk with us again in September. And so we got to have something to talk about then. Um, and so the reason you're here with us today is we're going to partner up for the next few months in an effort to get yeah. others to share their stories on how they've overcome depression or suicidal ideations. And so why has this become such a big thing for you to, to encourage other soldiers to share their stories? So... I think that historically what the military has done is they have said, hey, here's someone that killed themselves. Unfortunate. Why did they do it and how do we prevent the next one? But I think there's a greater value if we can gather the stories of the people that didn't choose to kill themselves. There's a whole population out there of soldiers, leaders um, that have been down this path just like I have. I talk to them all the time. Um, and 
if we can get them to share their story, there's great value in that. There is value. My story kind of starts that way of um, there's another song first class out there. I won't reveal their name. It's up to them to share their story. But they had some suicidal ideations. They posted about it on social media. I reached out to them um, and said, hey, is this you? Yep. And we started talking. And one of the eye openers for that other NCO was because our stories were very similar. As I started discussing my issues and how I would sit in my apartment, that NCO was like, holy cow, that's me. I'm like, yeah, like I can be your support system because there are others that have been through it. There are others that have defeated it in that moment. I mean, it's a constant battle, but but there are people out there that can relate to my story and go, if he can do it, then you can do it. It's not a right. career ender. It's not, but we got to capture those stories. We've done a, a bad job, I think, of it's kind of like flipping the script. Instead of focusing on the aftermath and how to prevent um, because someone killed themselves, how about we focus on the people that overcame and there's a positive story to say, hey, look, I've been there too and this is how I overcame it or I've been there and I've, I felt your pain, but you can overcome it. I think if we can get those stories out there, we can share those stories, others will see them and go, oh, I'm not alone. Other people have felt the same way. I can, they overcame it, I could too. And the one story I'll just throw out there that kind of answers that for me is when I was a, so I was a SAR major um, at Fort Leonard Wood and I went to Behavioral Health one day and I'm standing in line waiting to check in and there's a private there. He's a, he's in training. And at Fort Leonard Wood, we did a, a campaign and there's posters of me all over the installation. <laughs> and uh, so this private, he's like talking to his counselor, making another appointment. Well, to leave, he has to walk past me. And so I'm standing on this line waiting to check in and all, and as he's walking, he's like just staring me down. And I'm like, well, this is kind of weird. <laughs> and, uh, and all of a sudden he just stops and he goes, um, Sergeant Major? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I just wanted to thank you. And I'm like, for what? And he goes, because I've seen your posters. And I was like, oh, you have? And he goes, yeah, and I'm here to, I'm here in counseling now because I saw your posters. And, and I said, well, what made you decide to come here? And he goes, well, I just figured that if they were willing to help you as a staff sergeant, they'll be willing to help me now. And that was powerful to me. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's the whole payoff is that to, to share our stories, let people know that we've been there too, or others have been there too, whether you're a leader, whether you're a, not a leader, I don't care. And really what I need is I need sergeants and specialists and young officers, lieutenants, captains, um, staff sergeants. I need those guys to share their stories um, because I think that population, there is a good population of them that struggle. And, you know, a lot of people, oh, he's a SAR major. He's sharing a story. Okay. But I need, we need younger leaders, younger soldiers to share their stories. Cause I think there's even more value in hearing from those leaders that, struggled and overcame um i mean that's just that's yeah. my mentality is i agree completely well you guys so. have heard it you've heard the plea we need to <laughs> your stories we need to gather your stories and so after this episode is going to be published um we're going to put a call to action and that call to action goes across the ranks young soldiers old soldiers 
any rank, any demographic, we don't care. We just want to hear the reason why you decided to get help, the reason you reached out, and the reason you chose to live. Whenever you upload your story, you can use the hashtag, you don't stand alone, and that's the letter U, and then don't stand alone, and tag our Forcecom social media pages when you upload your video. If you'd feel more comfortable, you can reach out to us um, via direct message. We are willing to share your story in whatever way or format that you would like. And Jason is, he's going to be back with us in September and we'd love to include some of you in that conversation about overcoming the stigma, and you don't see me doing the quotation marks, but <laughs> I am, of seeking behavioral health care. All right. Well, I, I really hope that we get some stories and I'm looking forward to what we get what we get to see from you all. Um, and so, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and we'll see you again in a few months. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Our next guest is Sergeant Mary Jeanne Barnes from the 22nd Mobile Public Affairs Detachment. Sergeant Barnes was born in the Philippines, and at the age of 11, she was adopted and immigrated to the United States via San Diego, California. Sergeant Barnes joined the Army in 2014 and enlisted as a water purification specialist, and just recently reclassified to become a mass communications public affairs specialist. Her most recent assignment before Fort Bragg was in Camp Humphrey, South Korea. Okay, I'm going to totally already flip the script and say, how did you go from a water purification specialist? We were going to get to that. <laughs> nope, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping ahead. Let's see. So I enlisted uh, just to like get out there and get out of San Diego and like just see the world. And then um, when, it was up, when I was up for re-enlistment, they said, hey, this uh, MOS is new. Mm -hmm. They had combined like two old MOSs and combined it. And... There was a bonus and it matched my degree plan that I was trying to get. Mm -hmm. I was like, sign me up. So that's what I, I was going to ask you. Did you have like an interest in public affairs or writing and all of that? So I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to like numbers. My degree is in um, mass communications, but like the science -y part of it. So like uh, like audience analysis and like statistics oh. and stuff. So I was like, oh, well, so this you can help be us. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, this will be fun because um, this is the more creative side of it. Yeah, that's super interesting. I didn't even know that that was like a thing that you could mm -hmm. yeah. do. Cool. All right. I'm sorry. I'll go back to my script now yeah. <laughs> and tell more about you. So Sergeant Barnes, she also co-founded a Women in Boots program for female soldiers, and she mentored them in career progression, hazing prevention, and intervention. And she used to have her private pilot's license as well. That's super cool. So you, you could fly a plane yeah basically uh that was one of those remember, earlier i said that i was a good sport with the army so there was an opportunity to take the test because it was provided at the duty station i was at and i was like yeah okay sure <laughs> that's kind of awesome. like yeah it's the test is in two weeks here's the study buddy study guide and you got a uh, pass with like a 73 and i was like all right and it turns out it was multiple choice. And um, <laughs> so you picked C. <laughs> <laughs> and the study buddy had fairly accurate answers. And I just memorized the answers. And I just walked out of there with the certificate. Oh. And then all I had to do was get my hours uh, in. So interesting. Right. So I was like, fun army fact. You can get that. <laughs> that is not something I could ever do. I do not do well flying. My husband can attest to that. 
whenever we go to land, I'm like clutching on to whatever I can. I just don't do well. Oh, the first time I flew, it was declared an emergency landing. It was not the great. <laughs> it was not like a graceful. That's awesome. Thing at all. As long as you didn't make the news, then you're good no, to go. I think my eyes are partially closed, and I looked at my instructor. I was like, "Did I do it? <laughs> are we on the ground?" <laughs> That's awesome. So we have a lot of things and we've already started talking about some of them, but I just kind of want to start at the very beginning. Um, So you came to the U.S. at the age of 11 after being adopted. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So my mom is actually also Filipino, um, my adoptive mom. So she was a really big like career woman. Um, She basically was like, uh, I just give up on finding a life partner. So I'm just going (laughs) to have a kid. That's this way. so she uh, heard from my aunt, who's my adopted aunt, who's a nurse, that there was a baby that didn't have, that was dropped, dropped off at the hospital. And she was like, oh, I will take her. So oh. that was me. Um, so then uh, it was really weird because they she got a work visa to come to the United States, but um, I couldn't come with her because I was her adopted daughter. So I stayed with relatives for a while until she could like save enough money and um, put on the paperwork for me to come with her. So, okay. And then I came with her uh, a few years later, quite so, a few years. <laughs> well, so you came when you were 11. Mm-hmm. And so when did she come? Um, so she, she came, I think in like the nineties here. Okay. So it was a while. Okay. Uh, so I was born in 94. I didn't come here till I was 11. So she would visit okay. sometimes and send me care packages and yeah. stuff. But uh, the first, like the, my developmental years, my adopted <gasps> mom was here. Okay. But she worked really hard for me, so I really appreciated that. Yeah. So I just assumed that your adoptive, again, not knowing much, that your adoptive family was American, but that's not the case, and Mm -hmm. it's your adoptive mom. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so she's an American citizen along with my dad, who's also Filipino, but they just wanted to adopt, like, a Filipino child. Yeah. So, and I'll let Eve jump in. Oh, geez. I was going to keep You were going. on a roll. I That's was. okay. So can you tell us a little bit about the traditions and culture, like whenever you were over in the Philippines and then what you even continued whenever you came over with your mom here in the States? So she was really big on making sure that I still spoke the language because obviously I spent a lot of time in the Philippines. Um, when I first got here, the schools were really big on me learning English as quickly as possible. So they encouraged for me to not speak my native language at home. But my mom wasn't having it. <laughs> she was like, nope, that's not going to happen. Um, so I am bilingual, which is, I think, pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a fun fact. Um, Wait, can I be really ignorant? Yeah. So <laughs> is, is oh, I'm going to sound so bad. Philip. No. Tagalog. Oh. Yes. Isn't it? It's okay. Tagalog. Thank you. Score one. That yes. is not something I feel like a lot of people would know. <laughs> right? It's on my SRB because like um, we do... Well, my old MOS, we did missions in, in the Pacific. So I'd go as like an interpreter. Um, and sometimes like a sergeant major will look at my SRB and he's like, what language is this? <laughs> That's super cool. Do you know how to make chicken adobo? Because that is the coming. thing I need to learn how to do. I do. I feel like every every Filipino learns how to make that. <laughs> my one coworker, she used to bring it in and I haven't had it in years now and I still dream about it. I'm like, I need to figure. And I know it's a world of the internet and I could probably <laughs> easily look it up. I just, I need to. 
So can you talk about growing up in the Philippines? Yeah. Because you were there till you were 11. So what about some of the cultures and traditions? Um, so growing up in the Philippines is, is super weird. I like to joke <laughs> or I like to joke around that it's like perpetually stuck in the 90s. Oh. So the the um, the outfits and stuff are very like 90s. Scrunchies. Yeah. So I still kind of dress like that. <laughs> Uh, it's coming back. <laughs> it is. It's true. Um, let's see. So Filipinos are very family oriented and we, we really do like to cook. And everything we think you think like you see with Filipinos, like the karaoke, the cooking, uh, very big on family. It, it's real. It's true. I did not know karaoke was a thing. <laughs> it's a big thing. Ah. Like if you have a karaoke machine at home, like a magic mic, you're like the talk of the neighborhood. We have a magic mic at home if you ever need to borrow it. <laughs> Like with the books and the code. Oh no yeah. no no! We just got one of those ones that's got like the mic, the the speaker around it. It's our son, we hit it actually because <laughs> it was too much. Yeah. So this magic mic comes with like a catalog, and it has like a four digit number for every song, and the catalog is like this big. So you're just like flicking through it, trying to find like your. So your this is what you do song. on Friday nights. <laughs> In Korea, we did it. It was fun. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> In California, were there a lot of other Filipinos there? Or oh, yeah. Were you, there so, was a, I think that's why my parents chose to immigrate there. And my adopted dad and all his siblings are in San Diego. There's a big um, Filipino town. It's called National City. <laughs> um, and you, it's like being back home. It, there's tons of Filipino restaurants. And um, Christmas starts in September in National City. It starts uh, in September everywhere right? anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hate. <laughs> Um, yeah, the joke is that whenever there's like a burr at the end of the month, we can start singing Christmas songs <laughs> and like, put up decorations and I stuff. I like it. Filipinos love the Christmas time. I and you're still <laughs> That's awesome. So I want to go back actually. So when you were staying, um, when your mom had come back to the U.S., did you stay with your aunt? Yeah. So it was about my mom's sister. Okay. And it was a, it was a hodgepodge of everybody. So the... <laughs> The property we lived on, like, belonged to my mom's family. Uh-huh. So, like, there was, like, a rotating, like, um, just amount of aunts, uncles, cousins. And, oh, that's like, awesome. all kinds of relatives just constantly going through. Like, yeah. my aunt was, like, the main person of the household. But, like, someone was always staying over. <laughs> someone was always sleeping on the couch. Someone was always eating and raiding the kitchen. Like, there was always somebody there. Yeah. <laughs> and so then when you came, though, when you were 11, you kind of left some of that behind, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. right? Like. Some of your family's still over in the Philippines. Yes. Okay. Do you get to travel? Like, do you go back there or? Oh, I haven't been in a really long time. Like, I had the opportunity to go while I was in Korea, but I was always in the field. Um, That's what you do in Korea. Always, yeah. <laughs> it was gunnery after gunnery and, like, field exercise after field exercise. I was like, ah, it's so close, but so far. On the plus side, uh, the time difference wasn't terrible, so I could, like, video chat with my relatives more often. That's cool. Now, when you were in Korea, were you a water purification specialist then? Yes. Mm -hmm. So does that fall under public health? Um, Kind of. Like, we work with the, I think they're the 68 Sierras, um, but not entirely. We fall under quartermaster. Okay. Um, But, I mean, because, like, most places we go to have already clean water, uh, Beyond like field practices, we don't really get to do our job. So I always end up like in the S3 or in mm-hmm. operations, which is so fun. Like I grew up in the S3 as a from private to sergeant. So I've learned a lot. Well, and I'm sure it helps you um, just learn a bit more about the Army too and Correct. how things work. I wanted to go back and ask you 
um, about your adoption. I'm sorry. No, I, you're good. It's I, a fascinating story. <laughs> it, well, and so, so your mom adopted you from the hospital. So you've been with your mom since birth. Yeah, since basically. birth. Okay. Um, and did you have you known you were adopted? Um, so funny story. <laughs> um, I think there was definitely like the back of my mind kind of thing. I was a precocious kid. I asked a lot of questions. <laughs> and I also started noticing, like, maybe when you're, like, seven or eight, you know, you start being a little more inquisitive. And, like, none of my relatives look like me. <laughs> and my parents, yeah, my parents definitely don't look like me. And uh, my parents had a biological child, my little sister. And she definitely doesn't look like me. <laughs> and then, like, I hit puberty and I was like, nah, something's up. <laughs> But, you know, I was so happy. I never really, like, questioned it. It didn't matter. Yeah, it was never really spoken out loud because, I mean, I was pretty well uh, adjusted. I was doing great in school. So it wasn't too big of a deal. And we chalked it off to, like, an aunt that didn't exist that (laughs) sort of looked like me. Um, Everyone would be like, oh, you look like your aunt, so-and-so. And And I'm like, I've never met this person. (laughs) Do you have pictures? Um, And then when I turned... uh, Oh, she's going to kill me for this. So my little sister went through like a rebel without a cause kind of phase. It wasn't, t- wasn't anything crazy, but you know. We all have our phases. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I she, went through some weird phases. Yeah. So she went through like a rebel without a cause phase. And she, my mom told her just to like give her some, pers- I think to give her some perspective on life. And then she told me and I was like, ah, oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> so you found out secondhand. Yeah. Oh my and then gosh. my mom was like. She told you. And I was like, she told me. <laughs> she was like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, it's okay. That's so funny. I always kind of knew anyway. Yeah, but I was like, deep down. <laughs> you always think like it's going to be like the serious conversation. Right, was, yeah. And no. That's what my mom was preparing for. Like she and my dad like sat down at the dining room table and like it was quiet. And I'm like, what's going on? Did someone like die? <laughs> uh, it was the aunt this- that kind of looks like yeah. me. What's <laughs> How old were you when this happened? I think it was like 17 turning okay. 18. So, so I, was, I, mean, I was pretty mature enough to yeah, handle it. I think. it had, you had been doing this a while. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like TV shows kind of play it off as like this dramatic thing. And like the kid always is like, I lost trust in you and you lied to me. And I'm like, no, nah, it wasn't a thing. It, I, it didn't even cross my mind. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I think that proves to like the relationship that you have with your, your family. So that's awesome. So I'm going to switch gears. Yeah. Let's, again. I, did we do this already? We've we've said switch gears a couple of times, but it's, it's kind mostly of my, my go-to. Fault. Okay, so go ahead. Let's talk about women in boots. Ooh. What is women in boots? Um, so I stumbled upon women in boots. So it has different kinds of like names all over different installations, but it's not like regulated by anything. Usually, it's just up upon the the discretion of the people at the unit. Yeah. So um. I was getting frustrated because I wasn't like experiencing like EO issues, but mm-hmm. I did notice like there would be onlys around like my unit. So the unit I was in, it was huge. It had like a thousand people and it was spread throughout the peninsula. Um, so when I would go up to the near the DMZ, I noticed that like the females there wouldn't have as much like female NCOs or leadership yeah. because they were, um, you know, working hard up there and then all the all the females were back at Humphreys um in the more like admin kind of thing mm-hmm. um so I was like well there's got to be a way to like connect everybody because it seems like we're so detached from each other even though we're all in the same unit and of course it's not 
like a secret thing, but Korea is really like a big place where sharp and like EO yeah. is a big oh, issue. Yeah. So I was like, well, let's let, let's nip this in the bud. And so I sat down with this arc, um, who's also a female, and she was like, that's a great idea because it just it just seems like there wasn't um, a program specifically catered to mentorship with females. So yeah, we just grabbed a, a roster from S one. Um, tried to like bribe my S4 with pizza and we got a bus and <laughs> we threw everybody in there and we had like a thing and it just, the first one was totally impromptu and we just kind of hoped for the best and it just became like a regular like monthly thing. That's awesome. And we got positive feedback and it allowed everybody to stay in touch. So like female soldiers from like different MOSs, but like wanted to reach out to me and to like other female NCOs. So they had that ability after we started the Women in Boots program. I feel like that has probably um, impacted you, mm-hmm. being able to work with other female soldiers and share experiences like that. Yeah, it's nice because like I'm used to being an only. So like uh, in the in the shops that I'm in, I've always been either the youngest NCO and the only female NCO and usually the lowest ranking NCO. <laughs> so um, sometimes I feel like, I don't, nobody does it on purpose, but sometimes I feel like I have to like stand taller and, just and you're be, not very tall. Yeah, and I'm all very tall. <laughs> so I have to like stand taller and be a little louder than most to get like my point across. And I know that sometimes when you're like the only, it's hard to like have a voice um, on things or like relay your ideas. So when I had the opportunity to give advice to other onlys, to other females who are like the one female in their shop or the in t- at the motor pool or something like that, then I, I jumped at the opportunity. It was great. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and I think that's a testament too, and probably something where you could inspire other onlys because you had, I mean, I'm looking at you now and you already said the date you were born. So I know you're still fairly young because you were born the year I graduated high school, but we won't <laughs> talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're, you're an E5 and this happened in Korea. So, I mean, it was a little while ago, not a couple eons, years. but yeah. So the fact that you were a junior soldier or junior NCO and able to speak up and start this, like what advice would you offer other women in that position? Like you did say, you know, speak up and don't be afraid to be the only, but like if they're afraid that they're going to get blowback or something, like. That's a good question. I think that what was effective for me was, um, how do I say it? Like it's like keeping a positive attitude. I feel like when you can bring not just a problem to the table, but also a solution that people are more inclined to hear what you have to say. Um, Korea is one of those places where it's such a short rotation, like you're only there for a year. So most people treat it like prison where they're just trying (laughs) to get in and get out. Um, And so nobody really wants to make big changes that take time and effort. So I think if you come to the table with a problem like, hey, this is the problem, but this is my plan. Yeah. And just like throw it down. Not literally, but like (laughs) throw it down that like this is your plan and this is how you're going to make it work. Think people are more inclined to like pay attention regardless of like your rank or mm-hmm. who you are or even if you're not in korea right Absolutely. <laughs> agreed um so i'm going to go back to the whole reclassification to public affairs so we talked about it a little but now that you're in public affairs what has been your favorite part about it am i allowed to talk about sergeant patoka absolutely so for our listeners sergeant patoka is my husband who is Sergeant Barnes, 
is first line first line supervisor. So he's he's going to laugh because I complained the entire time. But um, we just did our media operations exercise and he made me the mock director for like three days and some change. And I really liked the whole like crisis communication thing and just like running around like a chicken with your head cut off because I'm used <laughs> to that. Like that part um, re- reminds me of being back in like S3 and operations where like you just never knew it was going to happen. Right. Uh, like one day you're just typing up a report and the next day you're like by the missiles being fired at things. <laughs> um, so it just reminded me of that chaos. And I, I sort of missed that. Like this unit is very uh, less chaotic than I'm used to. So it was nice. Yeah. I think that's my favorite part of public affairs so far is like leading a team and like trying to communicate well. well. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is your first public affairs position, right? Right. So- you came in and now you were leading soldiers and helping mentor them. And so that's got to be pretty rewarding to just come in and share your knowledge of not just public affairs, right. but your other experience. Yeah, that's my favorite part. Yeah. Um, I think because I was a reclass and I'm able to see like bigger pictures, like I'm able to step back and I'm like, all right, let's look at this <laughs> beyond the public affairs issue. Yeah. Um, and just let's run it this way. Maybe it'll work this way. Like you're, like a lot of my soldiers are experts. Like they're great at what they do. They're great writers and they're great content creators. But when like stuff comes down the pipeline, they start to panic because yeah. they're not used to running things. So I'm like, well, I know how to run things. So maybe we <laughs> can work together. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yay. This was a lot of fun. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And the next time you cook, I'll show you where my office is. Okay, right, great. Yeah. Right over at Forcecom. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that. I was like, I can probably just cook it for you. I I am not proud. <laughs> I will happily accept that. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you again. Thanks, guys. It's that time of year again. The U.S. Army is sponsoring Army National Hiring Days, May 10th through June 14th, with a goal of hiring more than 1,700 new soldiers. The Army is seeking full and part-time soldiers in 150 different career fields, ranging from traditional combat roles to support positions in logistics, engineering, and technology. The Army is offering special cash bonuses for those who enlist during this event. If you're a recent graduate or someone looking for a new challenge, go check out GoArmy.com backslash hiring days. We hope you've enjoyed getting to hear some of these stories and hope you join us again next month for an episode we have been working on for a while. June is Pride Month and we are talking with Chaplain Rebecca Ammons, a transgender woman serving in the Army. We are excited to bring you her story. And don't forget, if you're not already, make sure you follow Forcecom on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you feel like. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on the front line. <laughs>